Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. All right. I want to thank you all for coming out and sacrificing your time instead of watching an NFL football game. <laughs> but praise God. It's good to get together and fellowship and uh, hear from the Lord. Before we get started, let's go before him in prayer. Amen. Father in heaven, we worship you, we adore you, and we love you. Father, it is my prayer for us all that you would give us ears to hear the still small voice of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see, Father God, the, the path that is laid before us all. And Lord, in everything that we do and everything that we say, ultimately we pray that it would glorify you. Father, teach us by your spirit tonight. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this evening we'll be uh, touching bases on chapters 7, 8, and 9. If you didn't read, uh, read those chapters, that's okay. After service, you can come up here and repent, and the Lord will forgive you. <laughs> okay, but that's all right. I'll fill you in. Uh, it's in two parts. The first part is keep your eyes on the prize. It's chapter 7. That's taken out of Philippians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 3. Keep your eyes on the prize. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul writes, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So next question is, what's the prize? <laughs> to Apostle Paul, Christ was both the goal and prize. It's Jesus Christ. The Bible often speaks of the process of spiritual maturity that God takes his, that God takes his children through. However, it does not take place automatically. Oftentimes you heard Pastor Richard say, you know what, we're all just a work in progress. Now, prayerfully, that work in progress is upward and not downward. All right? Christians have a part, and God has a part. Full maturity will not take place until we get resurrected. Therefore, the glorified life in heaven is both the goal and the prize. So, brethren, we need to keep our eyes on the prize. Now, that's easier said than done. Because there are a lot of things in the world that can distract us, especially with our eyes. The Internet. The big screen. The ladies. Okay. For me, it's uh, sometimes it's Sam's Club. <laughs> right at the entrance, they have all these big screens and cameras, surround sound. See, it starts with the eyes. And where the eyes go, we follow. So we have to be careful to keep our eyes on the prize. Warren Risby quoting, those who minister, the word minister means to serve, 
must put others ahead of ourselves, but we must put the Lord ahead of others. We must put the Lord ahead of others. Point number one, focusing on the Lord can make a big difference in your ministry. You will be motivated to do your work and not look for excuses. It's easy to make an excuse for not doing the work of the Lord. Take, for example, Jonah. God commissioned Jonah to go preach to the nation of Nineveh. It wasn't necessary that he get swallowed up by a big fish for three days. And it's interesting, when the fish vomited him up on the beach, God told him the same thing he did before he got swallowed up. Go and preach the word. Focusing on the Lord, okay, if we had Jonah focused on him, then he would have been obedient the first time. He wouldn't have to go gone through what he, he went through. Number two, if you minister to get res- recognition, you will start doing less when people don't show their appreciation. That's a big danger. Last time I read the Bible, which was today, God gets all the glory. And whatever we do, we're supposed to be doing it as unto him. We are God's creation, and we were created for his purpose and for his glory. The only motivation that will take you through the storms, through the trials, and keep you focused, is keeping your eyes on the prize. The moment you and I take our eyes off of Jesus Christ, that's when all anxiety and worry starts to set in. And now, instead of leaning upon Jesus, we lean upon our circumstances. And then we want prayer. We should pray. But prayer is no substitute for action. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. Didn't the Lord say he would never leave us nor forsake us? We agree with that passage intellectually, but then God's going to test us to see if indeed we are focused and we have our eyes on the prize. Most of us confess that when we do something for somebody we really love, Somebody who means a great deal to us, we work hard to give our best. No demand is too difficult. No sacrifice is too great. That's the attitude we should have whenever we do anything for the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, you can go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24. Some of you are familiar with this. And whatever you do, you do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord that you and I serve. And you know how we serve him? You know how we're supposed to serve him? I'm talking about our attitude from the heart. We serve the Lord because we want to. 
It's out of gratitude. It's out of what he has done for us. The very least we can do is serve him, but on his terms. We don't serve to please men. We don't serve to please pastors, to please wives, to please children. We serve to please the Lord. Warren Risby also states, when you put Christ first in your ministry and do your work as unto the Lord, you not only do more and do your best, but the burden is light. When I first got saved many years ago, I used to hear this term or this cliche, you know, Christians getting burnt out. I didn't know what that meant. Until I took a closer look at this passage. Realistically, there's no such thing as being burned out for Christ. If that's the case, then really what we're doing is serving the Lord in our flesh. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He writes, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And an opportunity to dive in this verse a little bit more. Okay, what is this yoke? A yoke was used to harness two animals together. In such a way that the maximum pulling power of each would be exerted. The stronger animal would get the heavy load. My yoke refers to the yoke Jesus lays on his followers by which he makes them fellow workers with him. His yoke is light because Jesus Christ takes the heavy end. It's a beautiful illustration. In contrast to the heavy law and tradition the scribes and Pharisees laid on the people, Jesus' yoke, his teachings, his commandments, is a light burden in comparison. If you have been called to teach, for example, the Lord will strengthen you. He will encourage you to teach. For six years... Almost seven years, I had an opportunity to teach over, uh, to teach the youth, nine through 12. I enjoyed teaching. Taught every Wednesday, every Sunday. It was exciting. It was a joy. It was my passion. And it still is. So wherever God has called you to do, he will strengthen you by his Holy Spirit. And if you are serving in an area of ministry where you feel like, you know what, this is not for you, that's okay. Pray about it and move on. But God's word, his commandments, is light. But oftentimes we say, no, Jesus, no, 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 no. Here, you take the light burden, give me the heavy burden. And that's when we struggle. That's when we get misdirected. That's when we become confused. That's why it's so important, brethren, 
that we listen to that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. The Lord will not tell you or I to do anything or command us to do anything or give us anything that will hinder the relationship that he has with you and I. His yoke is light. Pastor Chuck, in his book, Why Grace Changes Everything, he writes, and I quote, God never intended that his people be bound by endless by an endless list of external pressures. It isn't pleasing to God to hear us moan and complain. What a drag. I have to go to church again? When there are hundreds of other things I'd rather do. But if I don't go, God won't love me anymore. And the preacher, oh no, he will give me that evil eye for missing a sermon. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's flesh. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, for God is working in you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. If you have been called to a particular ministry, God will empower you. That's what he says. And he will give you that desire to do what pleases him. Not what pleases men. Not what pleases your spouse, your family. Your boss, but to please the Lord. You keep your eyes on the prize. In verse 14, I'm reading out a New Living Translation. Do everything without complaining and arguing. So that no one can criticize you, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. There are many spiritual benefits of keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. And another one is being a light in a lost and darkened world. And right now, brethren, we're in a dark moment in our in a, this present age. You don't have to look far. The world needs hope. The world needs light. And the God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to be proclamators of the good news. That is the gospel. He wants to use you and I to reach this lost and darkened world. But we cannot do that in our own strength. We need the empowerment and the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. Point number three, something else happens when you put Jesus Christ first in your ministry. You stop watching other Christians and passing judgment on what they do or what God does with them. Warren quotes, people watching are a popular pastime among Christian workers, but it is a dangerous one. We just read in Philippians that we're supposed to keep our eyes on the prize, on Jesus Christ. 
Let's read the parable of the workers in the vineyard. A story Jesus told in response to Peter's question. It's taken out of Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It's a really good illustration. And it really touched my heart, and prayerfully, it'll touch yours. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Verse 2, he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. Verse 6. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw, saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one has hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. Verse 9, then those hired at 5 o'clock were paid each received a full day's wage. Verse 10, when those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? In verse 16, so those who are last now will be first, then And those who are first will be last. People watching are a popular pastime among Christian workers, but is a real dangerous one. Well, why? The first two workers that were hired made several mistakes that we could all learn from. Number one, when they got what they asked for, They complained about it. (laughs) How many times have we gone to the altar, to Jesus' feet, and we prayed, Lord, bring me a spouse. The Lord answers your prayer. 10, 15, 20 years later, Lord, take away that spouse. Wait a minute. You prayed. I prayed for fill in the blank. Lord answers our prayer and we complain. See, the danger was these workers made and we make it too. They were watching the other workers to see how long they had worked and how much they were paid. They complained. 
They complained. How many of us have ever complained? Okay, I complain. <laughs> but Paul writes in Philippians 2, we just read it 14, do everything without complaining and arguing. <laughs> so we all need to be at the altar. <laughs> Point number two. They accuse the owner of being unfair. Wait a minute. I thought you were out of work. The Lord blessed you with the job, and now you're complaining. But worse than that, these workers did not, listen closely, they did not respect authority. They did not respect authority. The workers just met the guy. And already they accuse him of being unfair. Now, practically, how can that apply to you and I? I'm a school teacher. I teach 9 through 12 for the last five, six years. The number one complaint I hear from men and women that are usually 40 or 50 or older is that this generation, this young generation, has no respect for older people. I hear it all the time. I see it every day. Well, part of, besides being rebellious, God reveals something to me that's dominant or predominant in our society, and that is the rate of divorce. See, brother, respect and authority is taught in the home. Where there's no father, that child is not going to be taught respect, and he or she is not going to be taught to respect authority. So therefore, when they become adults or they get a job and they're told to do something, by nature, they're going to rebel because they have not, there was no authority figure in the home. And that same mindset is brought into the church. Now, that doesn't mean that person is not saved. However, that's an area in their life that they're going to wrestle with. For me, it was never a problem. Because in a Harris household, you were taught to respect your elders. Never had a problem respecting. Especially someone older than me. But I had no control of that. It was the environment that I was in. We're taught to say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. When someone is speaking, we're supposed to say, excuse me. We knew our place. Today's society, these kids don't know. But that's okay. Jesus Christ, he will teach us if we humble ourselves and allow him 
to fill that vacancy of a father. But we have to humble ourselves. He's not going to force us. First, we have to confess that, hey, Lord, this is an issue that's in my life. Respecting authority. Please help me. Give you a good example. King David. In the Old Testament. King David was a man of valor. You study, you do your character studies. A man of valor was able to use a sword, both right-handed and left-handed. But yet, King David respected authority. He respected King Saul, even though Saul tried to kill him. He respected him. He said, I will not slay the Lord's anointed. That's why David was called a man after God's own heart. What else? The two workers that were hired made several mistakes. Point number three, they were jealous and envious. They were jealous and envious of the other workers. This is a person that feels bitter or unhappy because of someone else's advantage or possessions. Bitter or unhappy because of someone else's advantage or possessions. You already know what jealousy will do. Jealousy will destroy Relationships. It will destroy relationships with your spouse, your parents, your children, worst of all, with the Lord. Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things will be added unto you. They were jealous. And that shouldn't be said amongst Christians. We've been born again. We've been changed. There's no room for jealousy or envy in the house of the Lord. Yet, look at the owner's response. It's beautiful. The owner did not get it in his flesh. You know what he said? He called them friend. So, wow. Here's a man doing a good deed, serving trying to help those that are in need, being accused of being unfair. He didn't get in his flesh. He called them friend. That's the example that you and I need to be displaying towards one another, most of all towards the Lord. And finally, like I shared with you before, they took their eyes off the prize. They took their eyes off of Jesus Christ. Conclusion. God's grace makes some who are last first and some that are first last. The point of the parable is not that all in the kingdom will receive the same reward. We're not going to all receive the same reward. No, that's not the point here. 
The point is this, that God rewards believers according to his sovereign grace. That's why he is God and we are not. That's why he is the master. We are the slave. It's having a proper perspective to the one whom we claim that we're serving. Keep your eyes on the, on the prize. Chapter 8. For those of you that read your book, <laughs> I'll just touch on it lightly. Spiritual restoration. Spiritual restoration. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Let me read that again. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. What Paul is saying, that if someone stumbles, we are to basically help that person. The opposite would be to kick that person while they're down. Man, what happened to you? What? You should have known better. But see, Paul writes and said, hey, be careful. Take heed lest you fall. Because we're all capable of slipping. So if a brother becomes involved in a fault, the word fault means a false step. Those who walk in the spirit will, in a gentle and loving way, seek to restore him. That restoration may take a few weeks or years, but nevertheless, we're not to give up on that brother or sister. In Psalm 37, verses 23 through 24, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. It's beautiful. We are to humbly and gently help that brother or sister get on the right path. Isn't that what Jesus Christ did for you and I? In fact, he did more because none of us went seeking for the Lord. He sought us while we were in our sin, dead in our trespasses. That's love. That's unconditional love. That's the Lord. In chapter 9 in your book, chapter 9, this is the last one. Okay. think I'm on time. I remember Pastor, uh, Pastor Ray asked me to do these lessons, and he says, well, Brother Barney, you have about uh, 15 minutes to do your lesson. 
So, Pastor Ray, Pastor Richard gets an hour. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Brother Chris Horn, uh, he'll be leading the worship. Well, Pastor Richard gets the choir. <laughs> no. Do all things without complaining. Last point. Chapter 9. CCC. Christian character counts. Did you know that? Christian character counts. Warren Risby writes, writes, ooh, that's a tongue twister. This is what he says, okay? Don't throw your stones at me. (laughs) There is no substitute for Christian character. No matter how much talent and training we may have, if we don't have character, we don't have anything. That's a powerful quote. What is character? Character, the set of qualities that make somebody or something distinctive or unique. Christian character counts. So what makes a Christian distinctive or different from everybody else? What makes us different? It ties into the title. He or she lives a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. You and I are shaped by our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. We are. And become either more or less like Jesus Christ. There's no gray area. Every day, every hour, every minute, you and I are either becoming more like Jesus Christ or we becoming less like Jesus Christ. The more you are like Christ, this is the positive, the more God can trust you with his blessings. Translate. The more you are like Christ, the more opportunities to serve. For example, Saturday was a blessed time for those of you who were able to make it. It was a day of prayer for the men. It was it was very special. It's always special uh, for something you, you may or may not know, but I'm going to share this with you. Not only was it a time of prayer and of fellowship, but whether you realize it or not, uh, I've been saved, my wife and I, for over 20 years. And I've been sitting under the teaching of only three pastors. That's it. My former pastor, Pastor Brian, and Pastor Richard. And you know what a blessing it is to pray, you know, with your leaders, with the men that God used to help shape and conform our lives. That is a blessing. It is a privilege. Oftentimes, people leave other fellowships on a bad note. But I'm blessed that I can still have fellowship with my former pastor. 
blessings. The word blessing means God's favor. I enjoy it. I desire God's good hand. Once you get a taste of that, listen, you will always want to seek him. You will always want to please him. At this point in my life, I tell you, I could not ask for anything else. My cup, it really, it runs over. I could not see this 15, 20 years ago. There's no way. I'm at a job. I can't even call it a job. I love it. I enjoy it. I work six hours a day. Working on cars, which I enjoy. Cooking, which I enjoy. Laughing, which I enjoy. (laughs) I got a full kitchen there. Air conditioning. I mean, it's a blessing. And then a ministry. Bible study. Twice a week. Favor with the principal. Favor with the superintendent. You know what, brethren? You know where we want to be? In God's will. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what man may say. You have to get that out of your thinking. Keep your eyes on the prize. And then wait. Wait. He hasn't forgotten you. Man may forget you, but God has not. Christian character counts. There's a book I read many years ago by Donald S. Whitney. It's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Now, don't let that word disciplines scare you. Like, oh, no. Okay, the word disciplines, as we apply it to spiritual things, simply means a habit. Every one of you has a habit. Some of you have a habit of sitting in the same chair. Okay. (laughs) Some of you have a habit of going to the same restaurant. It simply means a habit. Now, apply that to the spiritual realm. Prayerfully, you have a habit of, or a discipline, I'm going to transition you over, a discipline of praying, of fellowshipping, of sharing the gospel. Okay, so... Let me just share this, uh, these truths with you. It's very insightful, at least for me, and prayerfully will bless you. Christian character counts. Another word for godliness, okay, as I read this, is holiness. Another word for godliness is holiness. The spiritual disciplines are those personal and corporate disciplines or habits that promote spiritual growth. We all want to grow. We all want to serve the Lord. They are habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since the biblical times. This book examines the spiritual disciplines of Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, service, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling and learning. This by no means, however, an exhaustive list of the disciplines of Christian living. A survey of other literature on this subject would reveal that confession, accountability, simplicity, submission, spiritual direction, celebration, affirmation, sacrifice, watching and waiting, and more also qualify as 
spiritual disciplines or things that are characteristic of the Christian man or woman. Whatever the discipline, it is most important feature, get this, is its purpose. What's the purpose? Just as there is little value in practicing the scales on a guitar or piano, has nothing to do with my pastor or his wife, okay? <laughs> it's just an illustration. <laughs> Practicing the scales on a guitar or a piano, apart from the purpose of playing music. There is little value in practicing spiritual disciplines apart from the single purpose that unites them. And you know what that purpose is? The purpose is godliness, holiness. Thus we are told in 1 Timothy 4, 7, 4, 7 to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. It's the New American Standard. The spiritual disciplines are the God-given means we are to use in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness. Godly people are disciplined people. It has always been so. Call to mind some of the heroes of church history, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Bunyan, Susanna Wesley, George Whitfield, Lady Huntington, Jonathan, and Sarah Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, George Mueller. They were all disciplined people. In my own pastoral and personal Christian experience, I can say that I have never known a man or woman who came to spiritual maturity except through Discipline. Godliness comes through discipline. It's habitual. Actually, God uses three primary catalysts for changing us and conforming us to Christ's likeness. But only one is largely under our control. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens another in Proverbs 27, 17. There's three Three vehicles that God uses to grow us up. And the end result, prayerfully, is that we are holy and have a closer walk with the Lord. Sometimes God uses our friends to sharpen us into more Christ-like living. And sometimes he uses our enemies to follow away our rough, ungodly edges. Parents, children, spouses, co-workers, customers, teachers, neighbors, pastors. God uses people to change us. Another change agent God uses, and many of you experience this, is circumstances. And see, we have to be careful that we don't pray that God takes away the circumstances that he's using us to conform us more to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why it's important that we pray in the what? In the spirit. God will give us the strength, the power, and the endurance to go through the fire. But oftentimes we pray, Lord, that you would put out the fire. You want to grow? 
you want to be used mightily of the Lord, then you must and I must go through the process of trials and tribulations. Many quote Romans 8.28. We know that all we know that in all things God works for the good in those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Financial pressure. Health. And even the weather is used in the hands of God to stimulate his elect towards holiness. We, the end result of a trial or tribulation is greater faith and holiness. Not the opposite. Oh, I'm not going to church anymore. God doesn't hear me. Either we're living a life for Christ or against him. That will be demonstrated not by what we say, but by what we do. Spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 Paul writes, no, I'm sorry, Peter writes, Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, think, brother, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. For you Bible students, in the Greek and the Septuagint, you look at the voice tense mood. That is an imperative. And an imperative in the Greek, translated into English, it is a command. Being holy is not an option. God commands you and I to live lives that are holy, that are pleasing and acceptable to him, not unto men, not unto this world, not even to ourselves, if we want to be used by him. To be holy is to be separate from this world. To be holy is to be separate from this world. To avoid the ways of thinking, acting, that characterizes people that do not know God. As dark as this world is right now, if a person walks into your home or your work center, they should spot you and I in a minute. Instant. We walk in a grocery store, they should be able to spot us. Because listen, it is dark out there. People need Jesus. People need light. And he has called you and I once again to be that light, to be ambassadors. God created you and I to glorify him. And you want to glorify him the most? When a man or woman or child bows a knee on this side of Calvary and accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That brings him glory. And the fruit of this 
Or how can we conclude this? If we're to be separate from the Lord, then we are indeed in a foreign land. Brethren, don't get comfortable here. Just like in the Old Testament, we are just passing through. This is not our home. Life is nothing but a vapor. It just passes away. But in the meantime, we need to redeem the time. Live lives that reflect the teachings and the preaching of the scriptures. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, help us, Lord, where we have fallen short. Father, it is my prayer that you would guide us and you direct us, Father, to do those things that pleases you. Father, you've made it so simple, so plain for us. We really have no excuse. And forgive us, Father, if we have ignored your word, ignored your precepts. But we thank you once again, Father, for the opportunity to experience your grace, your mercy, and your love, Father. Lord, you have called us friend. Father, I pray for us all that you would help us to get this word into our hearts and into our lives. And that we would be refreshed by the renewing of our minds in your Holy Spirit. I pray that we've all made that decision, publicly and privately, to serve you and you only. We love you, Lord. You have done so much for us all. Truly, our cup runs over here at Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. I pray, Lord, that you would raise us up to be leaders, not only in the home, in the workplace, but, Lord, in this lost and dying world. But we cannot do it alone. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless the remainder of our time together, bless our time of fellowship. In Jesus' name. Amen.